I'm Paul Brady, regional editor at The Cork Report, and this is my podcast in Northern Wine Odyssey, part of the Cork Report Podcast Network. To listen, search Cork Report in Google or your podcast app of choice. In this episode, I speak to Paul and Shannon Brock of Silver Thread Vineyards in the Finger Lakes. We talk about all sorts of things related to viticulture, winemaking, marketing, selling wine, history of wine. And I think uh, what I took away from this episode is that it is so interesting and wonderful to see how wineries and how grape growers and winemakers can change their philosophies over time. The wines from Silver Thread were some of the first wines that I had from from the Finger Lakes, and in particular, their Pinot Noir uh, from their vineyard made a big impact on me uh, way back when I, when I was first getting into this. I've been a buyer, a server, a fan of the Silver Thread wines since I first uh, began working with them back in 2012 at Terroir Wine Bar. So I was very happy to catch up with Paul and Shannon. So here we go. Northern Wine Odyssey, part of the Cork Report Podcast Network. Thank you, as always, to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you stream or purchase music. Joining me today, Paul and Shannon Brock of Silver Thread Vineyard in the Finger Lakes. Good morning. Hi, Paul. Good morning, Paul. We have a, a, a lot to talk about. Um, Shannon, your your email back to me that I, I gather you and Paul spoke together on uh, is brilliant and kind of almost worth publishing on its own. <laughs> I kind of oh, want to share that you. with people. She's um, good like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, 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 but before we get into that, uh, the niceties are important. Uh, how are you both? Shannon, let's start with you. Uh, doing great. We're It's been, you know, a pretty crazy ride over the past year, but we've uh, we've done really well. And we're, it's spring is always an exciting time. We're trying to get the vineyard tied. And then also uh, we just reopened the tasting room last weekend. Did you guys shut the tasting room down completely over the winter or were you open on weekends only or anything like that? No, we were closed completely, which is actually a silver thread tradition because we're located about a mile off the main road on a kind of a a hill and it's a dirt road privately maintained coming down. So we uh, were always closed in the winter. This year we were closed a little bit longer. We typically reopen in March, but I really wanted to wait until all our team had the chance to get vaccinated before we reopened. Gotcha. Paul, what's going on? Uh, You know, just as Shannon mentioned, we're tying the vineyard. We uh, ended pruning. We finished pruning on time. I actually finished pruning in the dark this year because I wanted to get it done. So I strapped a headlamp on and that was an interesting experience. But uh, looking forward to this growing season, it's uh, hopefully we'll have uh, plenty of grapes this year. We're a little short last year. So a lot of hopes and dreams. And, you know, it's always thinking at this time of the year of the, what the potential is and knowing that harvest is here tomorrow, basically. <laughs> uh, were you happy with the overall quality of 2020? Yeah, it was a vintage of 
uh, about the highest quality we could have in the Finger Lakes in terms of cleanliness on the fruit. And especially with red varieties, it was just really nice with all the sunlight that we had last year and the heat that we had and the minimal rain. Um, and of course, we could have used a little extra rain, but I think that the growing conditions were about perfect, which is uh, uh, one of the few things you could say was perfect about 2020. I've tasted some absolutely delicious wines, finished wines so far from 2020, but uh, look out, everyone, because I'm seeing like quite a few 14 percenters. Yes. It's, uh, <laughs> but they're balanced and, and I don't think full we of finesse. So that... it's not a problem. Our Gewurz is real close to 14 if, it, if it's not, but uh, we oh, do have several things in the, the 13. Yeah, Chardonnay is definitely mid 13. Uh, but yeah, it's higher alcohol than we would normally expect from the Finger Lakes, which is fine. You know, it's we're trying to make wines that are reflective of the vintage, and that's what what 2020 is, as opposed to 17, 18, and 19 that didn't have as much sugar. <laughs> I've not had anything that has tasted the slightest bit flabby or out of balance at all. Too yeah. hot, nothing. There's still acid, still a little bit of acid at least. And uh, we just tend to retain a little bit of acid no matter what, I guess. Very cool. Okay, last question before we get into the subject. You are affectionately both known as the Brock Stars. Love it or hate it? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with that. <laughs> okay. Honestly, I don't think I've heard that before, Paul Brady. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> I think I'm blushing. Well, now you know. <laughs> she is. Okay. Well, you're going to now that you know, you're going to you're going to hear it around, of course. I need a t-shirt. Totally need t-shirts. <laughs> okay, so um without really making any sort of official series announcement, what I what I've learned is that I I, I guess just based on my own interest, I've been kind of going through um these some of these podcast episodes with this chronological history of both viticulture winemaking and even like a little bit of tourism as it relates to New York State and I think it's as I now am seeing organically that that's taken shape I, I'm pretty happy with the episodes we have so far and and uh, want to continue on that route so. As uh, as New York has been producing wine commercially for about 150-odd years now, uh, we've touched on the very early days, had an episode um, about uh, the Labrusca grapes and, and the very early winemaking movement in the 19th century, and followed that up with um, an episode talking about sort of the second wave hybrids that came in a little bit later and in the early part of the 20th century. And so what I really want to touch on today with you both is the shift from those hybrid grapes to sort of mainstream vinifera territory. So you have a vineyard that's ideally located on the east side of Seneca Lake that is known and plays sort of an important part in this history in particular of that shift from Labrusca and hybrids to vinifera. So Shannon, I want to start with you because I can't even remember now what seminar or what Zoom thing or what I heard you, uh, whatever it was that I was hearing you talk about, your site 
in terms of the early Labrusca. And then I know you guys have some some of the earlier sort of old school French American hybrids there as well. So Shannon, can you take us through sort of the Cliff's notes of that history of Labrusca and hybrids as it relates to your site? Sure. Um, So we know that our site has been a grape farm since the 1880s. There is actually, it used to be a bigger vineyard than it is now. So we have some wooded area on the property. And when you walk through it, um, it's, it's been, it was abandoned in the 1930s. So there's, it's forest now and it's mostly pine and red cedar. So when you're walking through, there's this beautiful exposed forest floor and you can easily make out the terracing that they used to use back when it was all horse-drawn equipment. We find lots of old locust vineyard posts, black locust, because they used to grow their own posts right on the farm. Um, and we also find horseshoes all over the place, like in our, in the ravines that, uh, that, you know, form the boundaries of the different vineyard blocks. So uh, that's really cool. It's like living history right here. And then um, I think I actually heard this story first from Steve DeFrancesco, who is the uh, the winemaker at Glenora. And a, a wonderful thing about Steve is he started working in the Finger Lakes, I think in the 70s. Yes. So uh, he knew a lot of, you know, if you read any history of the Finger Lakes, like all the people that were big players then, like Steve worked for them, <laughs> worked with them. Uh, so anyway, Steve told me the story that that our vineyard, uh, although it was always privately owned, uh, sold grapes to Gold Seal, which was one of the big wineries over on Cuca Lake. And they brought over a winemaker from France named Charles Fournier. And he is the one who uh, is credited with introducing French American hybrids to the Finger Lakes. Uh, and at the time he came over, it was all Labrusca, uh, in particular Catawba and over here in Kaywood where we are. Um, so, so, so the hamlet of Kaywood was a huge sea of Catawba. And, and after several years of observation, Charles Fournier noticed vintage after vintage that the Catawba from Kaywood was the ripest, cleanest, best quality Catawba grown anywhere in the region. So he convinced the owners of Gold Seal to embark on this ambitious project of tearing out some of that Catawba and planting Chardonnay and Riesling. So um, there's a very large vineyard adjacent to ours called uh, the Doyle Fournier Vineyard, currently farmed by the Doyle family, but that was the original Gold Seal vineyard. So so what's our vineyard was was privately owned and farmed, but all the grapes still went to, still got sold to Gold Seal and it's kind of considered part of that gold seal vineyard. So it's um, contiguous to that vineyard. Right. So, uh, so shortly after that gold seal experiment began in the 1970s, um, Richard Fiegel, who's the founder of Silver Thread, bought, bought this, uh, what was then a Catawba vineyard and started uh, transitioning over to uh, Riesling, Chardonnay, but also some Pinot Noir, which, so we have some of the oldest uh, Pinot Noir on Seneca Lake. Now, there, there are some other Fournier vineyards over on that side of the lake, too. At one time, were they all connected, or are, is there quite a bit of distance between some of those vineyards? I believe they might have been connected, but I, I kind of question what is now National Forest, what, which is Kaywood Point. I don't know if that was ever actually planted the vines Right. So, so the, the vineyard that's currently um, Standing Stone, uh, owned by the folks at Weimar, um, that was a Charles Fournier vineyard, yep. but it's not, 
it is like Paul's saying, there's there's national forest in between, which um, at one time probably was it, farmland. So I'm, I'm it, not certain. It was farmland, but I don't think it was grapes. Mm-hmm. So it must have been two different plots, but they're very close. Okay. So on your site, with the success of Catawba, was there a shift at all to any of the second wave hybrids? So now we're talking about various grapes that were developed at universities uh, either in Europe or Canada or elsewhere? I would say all around this area, there was a high planting of uh, those hybrid varieties that you're talking about, but not actually in Kaywood. There was a pretty drastic transition right from Catawba to the vinifera varieties, uh, where you have uh, other vineyards around us, like the Wagners, uh, had hybrids planted all on the hills and north of Kaywood. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about the shift, the, the sort of like intense shift to vinifera in that area. When exactly did that transition start occurring? I guess, when did it start? And when did it sort of conclude such that it was predominantly vinifera because you are in a particularly warm area of the Finger Lake. So I imagine at this point, the majority of the acreage over there is probably vinifera. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, so in late sixties is when Charles Fournier started ripping out some of the Catawba and the main uh, Kaywood vineyard and replanting uh, first to Chardonnay and then in 70 three to Riesling. So the block, we actually purchased Riesling from that oldest Riesling block for our Doyle Fournier Riesling. And that, that continued. Uh, so when Richard purchased the Silver Thread property in 1977, he started ripping out the Catawba that was here in 78. So I'm not entirely sure when, the, when it was complete, I've heard that one of the Chardonnay vineyards that we drive by on the way down the road was converted to Chardonnay in the early 80s. So that transition, you know, probably took 15, 20 years, but there's a little bit of Vidal left. And that's about it from the old hybrid varieties in the Kaywood vineyard. I mean, Matt's even replaced some of the uh, vinifera that's there with more vinifera. We're in that second replanting phase. And so do you have any way of knowing, going back even to all the way to the Labrusca days of your site in Kaywood, what the managing of the vineyard was like in terms of how it was treated, um, you know, the farming, the spraying? Do you have any way to, to, to know going back farther than, farther than when Richard took over? Uh, one thing I'll just add uh, is that we know Lodi, the town that we're located in, has this wonderful historical society that that publishes these great quarterly uh, journals on different topics. And so, uh, so from some of their research, we know uh, that that actually um, table grapes were a really big part of that early Catawba phase. So. Um, they would handpick and select you know, the best varieties. And actually, one of our neighbors' homes is a converted fruit packing building. And there was a train that came right through here. And they would, uh, they would pack the, the table grapes into these cute little boxes and ship them 
you know, all over the Eastern seaboard. So, and then it was really, you know, the grapes that were less than perfect visually would be the ones shipped over to Gold Seal for winemaking. So I think that's kind of interesting. So how far back are you able to find records of the grape growing on your site? I mean, I mean, like good record keeping in terms of how the how the land was was treated. It's it's unfortunate we don't have those records. And I've even talked to Matt Doyle about the records that Gold Seal would have had. Uh, so even dating to when the transition occurred. And all those records are lost. I mean, I kind of have this romantic dream that they're sitting in the old gold seal winery that's breaking down on the shores of Cuca Lake, but nobody has really good records. There could be some, I believe, okay, so I believe that some of Charles Fournier's document ended up at Cornell, but I'm not sure how much of that was retained. Um, and there could be some with Greg Learned, but it's really unknown. Greg Learned is the winemaker at Bully Hill. And actually, some of the story, not only have we heard it from Steve DeFrancesco, but we've heard it from Greg also, who has been around since the 70s. So, yeah, all those records are lost. We know that they had horses. We know that they had terracing. We know that they used locust posts because there's still some of them in the ground with staples from them. But... Uh, that's pretty much it. And I think we also know they use some pretty horrible chemicals like lead and arsenic and probably arsenic, (laughs) you know, things that, things that we, you know, nobody uses today, but, um, I think that's, yeah, I mean, it it really is uh, true that there's, there are just no records. I mean, I, to this day, I even still get occasionally journalists or, Others reaching out to me asking about asking various questions about history or grape acreage or this or that and the other, and there there really aren't records. So what you're saying is exactly correct, and what I've heard from from everybody up in the region too that not even Cornell University or any sort of state or or, or uh, you know uh, local affiliate has them. And the best we can do is talk to either the legacy families like the Wagners and the Franks or these winemakers who have been around since the seventies, the people that you're talking about, like Steve and, you know, people like Derek Wilbur and Tim Benedict. So it's, it's really at this point, kind of a, an oral tradition, isn't it? In yeah. Terms maybe, of the history. maybe that could be um, a series for your podcast, Paul. You could, could take oh, oral I mean, histories what, what, from these very <laughs> critical people before it's too late. I mean, whatever not it is that I do. I mean, they're this, all still working. They're not even retired, but. I know. <laughs> whatever it is that I do with this little um, unofficial history of New York wine, without question, Steve DeFrancesco is going to be the concluding episode. Well, <laughs> I'm going to give I'm going to give a little plug also to, to Richard Fiegel, the founder of Silver Thread, because he wrote a fantastic yes. book right after we bought the winery from him. His uh, his first retirement project was to research and write a book that's called Circle of Vines. And it's the complete history of uh, grape growing and winemaking in for all of New York State. Um, and it's a it's very well written, very well researched. So for people that are interested in the history, I, I highly recommend it. He starts with the glaciers. I mean, it's a great book, but he he's a he's a real writer, isn't he? Yes, yes. That's he was a writer before he was a winemaker. Yeah, I mean that that's a big reason as to why the book's as good as it is. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to talk to Richard. Maybe you guys can put me in touch with him at some point. Sure. Um, yeah. Because uh, he's around, I'm, he still comes and helps us pick grapes every fall. 
That's so cool. I mean, I'm in and out of that book all the time. It's really one of the great reference books for for the state still. Um, Agreed. So when when you started really uh, checking out the site, maybe even before you bought it, I, I, I gather that you were at least familiar with the area. Paul, I know that you were working around as a winemaker. What was uh, what was the site like? Because I know that Richard, when he owned the the vineyard and started Silver Thread, which you all purchased, I want to say in 2011. Is that right? Yes. yes. What? He was farming organically in certain vintages, at times certified, at times practicing. What kind of shape was the vineyard in when you inherited it? Uh, surprisingly, well, not I should say purchased it, not inherited. Yeah, uh, yeah, we didn't inherit it; we did buy it. Uh, it was in really good shape. It was not trained the way I would have liked to see it trained. So we did several years of kind of remodeling how the vines were trained to the lower wire. Uh, he had trunks trained up to, uh, you know, almost 48 inches and we wanted them at the more 30 to 36 inch height, but, uh, the, he had been cultivating the soil and doing a pretty good job of weed control. And surprisingly, there was very little, uh, disease like viruses or bacterial diseases in the vines themselves. So he had been very successful, uh, keeping the vines healthy. And in hindsight, uh, I probably didn't appreciate that as much. And it took some other people to come down here to point that out to me. Uh, but the vines are still in good shape. We still have most of those old vines. Some of them did have, I said, we didn't have virus. We had a lot of virus, but it wasn't throughout the whole vineyard. And there's other problems that you would expect uh, for a vineyard not using modern chemicals that weren't present, that were actually being controlled organically. And I give Richard a lot of credit for that. Uh, I look back at his notes and the types of uh, practices he was using, and I can learn things from that now. That's very cool. So I can remember uh, my first time trying a Silver Thread wine and it would have been a wine from a vintage before before you both took over. I remember I was reading something about Pinot Noir that Alice, the writer Alice Firing, had written. And in this, I, I think it was at her blog going going back quite a bit now, talking about Pinot Noir and mentioning that she had had one or two examples from the Finger Lakes that she liked. I reached out to her and asked what those examples were, and she she mentioned Silver Thread. I was then able to find a bottle of Silver Thread Pinot Noir. I think it was a 2008 Silver Thread Pinot Noir from a, at a wine shop in Brooklyn. This would have been around 2010. And I remember that wine. It was a pretty good wine. And then I remember later, uh, many years later, when I was sort of between jobs and I came up to, to the region just just because I was between jobs and needed something to do. And I was waiting tables at the stone cat and in the cellar was a 2008 silver thread Pinot Noir. So we opened that one again, very good wine. So I got to know your vineyard through the lens of Pinot Noir, but I gather there's more Riesling or even Cabernet Franc or Chardonnay planted than Pinot Noir. Can you give the breakdown of grape acreage on your, on your farm? Just, Shannon and I are sitting next to each other here. And uh, can you hear this here, Paul? That is a bottle of 2008 Pinot Noir. And unfortunately, we don't have video to prove that, but we can take a picture with our phone. And cool. Send it yeah, to take you. a picture and send it to me. Um, I have pictures of, of those bottles too. 
<laughs> yeah, but they were within our arms reach as you mentioned them. So um, it's cool. And we we uh, last winter, like in December, we were uh, opening that as a special library for because we when we bought Silver Thread, we got everything, including the inventory. So we have a little bit of that uh, Pinot still left, and I would say there's a bit of bottle variation that was kind of one of Richard's hallmarks. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But um, but you know some of the bottles are pretty. People are pretty uh, blown away by them. Do you but have do, do you have records of which vintages were certified organic or even treated organically? Yeah, because so, it's on the label. So he started. He, so he started very kind of conventionally as he was learning to farm. Because as we mentioned, he was a writer, and he transitioned into organic by late eighties. And then he was certified at least for a couple of years in the early 90s. Uh, and then after he either lost his certification or gave up the certification, he, I believe his story would say he lost his certification because of neighbors, because they changed the encroachment boundary distances, buffer the buffer zone. Yeah. And he continued to farm organically with very few exceptions. Uh, there was one year he had to use... Uh, an insecticide because uh, he had a pretty bad infestation of I forgot which insect. I think leaf hoppers. Yeah, it was leaf hoppers. Thanks, Sean. And that was the one time I know that he didn't use an organic material in the vineyard uh, for twenty years, over twenty years. Uh, so he was pretty dedicated to that, and he was passionate about being an organic farmer. And he used some biodynamic practices as well, and from you know, he made some preparations on on site too, which is kind of interesting. And that transitioned into his cellar work as well, didn't it? He was pretty lower intervention, was he not? He he was a grape grower, and I think he would ad- admit that too. Uh, he had a well. We have this patio in front of the winery that was actually his crush pad. It was shale stones all laid out, and he would run electricity up there and crush the grapes into plastic barrels. And I don't know if he pressed it up there. No, he would always press his whites offsite, but the, the reds, he would kind of gravity flow into the cellar and press it off in this old wooden basket press that we had and put it in barrel. And then he was done. <laughs> he might add a little bit of SO2 before bottling, but he pretty much just, let it be. He'd top up the barrels when he thought of it. And uh, he, he was a grape grower and the winemaking was secondary. Mm-hmm. So what was, uh, just to get back to, to what you have on your farm now, what was on the farm when you bought it from Richard and what's there now in terms of grapes? So we had Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Gewürztraminer, Cab Franc, and Cab Sauv, just uh, two and a half rows of Cab Sauv uh, and very like a half acre of Cab Franc. And now we have all those varieties. Oh, we actually, it was kind of funny. We had uh, maybe a row of Gruner Veltliner. Not even a Not row. even a row. Well, between the two places two we got it. Two quarter rows that okay. were like a half test row. Plot. <laughs> and then we had like four panels of Sylvaner, which yeah. is a German crossing um and neither of those really worked with any of the other varieties so we we quickly either ripped those out or they died um the the gruner and the solaner 
and we planted some Merlot and we've expanded our Cab Franc plantings. We've ripped out some of the Chardonnay. We still got about half of what we had uh, and replaced that with Riesling and planted a row of Pinot. Uh, but we've got plans. We can get to those. Well, and I, it just made me think, Paul, when you said uh, your first Silver Thread wine was a Pinot Noir, um, that would have made Richard really happy. Yes. That's how he would have wanted you to first experience Silver Thread because that was, the you know, the Burgundy wines were definitely his passion. And what uh, I think he he had Riesling because he knew we had to have Riesling. <laughs> but for us, um, I'd say prob- one of the biggest changes in the silver thread portfolio is that we are really uh, crazy about Riesling. So uh, we really emphasize the Riesling. We make many different styles of Riesling. We expanded the Riesling planting while still staying true to the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir that, you know, that Richard founded the, the place on. Okay. I want to come back to, to that in terms of what you have expanded uh, grape wise, and I know you're you're planting new grapes as well. But I, I I have to touch on the first time that I that I ever visited the winery, and I know that Paul, you've heard me talk about this somewhere in a seminar or something once upon a time. But it has to be shared with the podcast world. And Shannon, I don't know if you remember this, but this was 2012. It was the first time I had visited the Finger Lakes as an adult, and I I had very few appointments. But I had set up the appointment at Silver Thread probably through whoever your distributor was at the time. And I was working at Terroir Wine Bar and Hearth Restaurant that had a huge Riesling program. So it was a pretty important place for Finger Lakes wineries. And of course, Paul Greco, the wine director and owner of of those places at the time, was especially well-known in, in the Riesling world and oddly had yet to visit the Finger Lakes. So when I made those appointments... I realized when I got to Silver Thread, and Shannon, I think you had put it together at this point, that you you both knew that Paul from Terroir and Hearth w- was coming to visit. But <laughs> Paul Brock, you thought that it was Paul Greco. And Shannon, I think maybe you did too, but you figured out that it wasn't shortly I, before I'm, I arrived. I'm terrible with names, so I just knew that Paul was coming. No, right. you're, you're <laughs> right. Paul Brady, you were right. We were I, expecting Paul right. Greco. Right. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, realized... I knew when you came through the door that you were not him. I had not met Paul Greco. Paul, I think you had met him. I hadn't met him, but I had been involved with some... Like, we both knew I've what he looked like video. and everything. Right, so, yeah. right. Well, and I, and I realized... You were very nice and, like, <laughs> a, a wonderful well, substitution. <laughs> well, I remember that... Uh, that like you were upstairs, Shannon, and you told me you're like he doesn't know yet that it's that it's not Paul Greco coming <laughs> coming downstairs to the cellar, and that made me realize because that trip was so amazing. It was red carpet everywhere I went, and I realize now that that's because everyone thought it was Paul Greco. No, stop. To we, are, we are like that. We are we are hospitable like that to everyone. <laughs> well, okay, so now I, I I gotta also say this, Paul Brock, yeah. you are not the same man that I met in 2012 as it relates to your vineyard and your winemaking. <laughs> do, you, do you care to comment? <laughs> oh, uh, so I i don't know. I've been trained as a winemaker, more or less, from an academic setting and did a lot of grape growing academically, but 
not as much practical uh, grape growing. And yeah, I learned from the Cornell system and, and that's pretty, you know, cut and dry. If you do these things and, you know, you're open to using the materials that are available and the techniques that are available, then you can have grapes and grow grapes. And, you know, I thought that was the way to go. And as a professor teaching people how to grow grapes uh, at Fingerlicks Community College, uh, it was definitely the way I was supposed to go with teaching people because that's the accepted way to grow grapes. Uh, so we really took a shift when we bought Silver Thread and brought it away from the organic practices that Richard was using. And, and primarily because I was adamantly against using copper sulfate and didn't want to use that. And now I'll just digress for a minute. Uh, copper sulfate is a poison to soil. It doesn't go anywhere. It kills or um, changes the, the microorganisms that are growing in the soil. And most can't grow in the presence of high concentrations of copper sulfate. And I knew that that had been used here. I didn't want to continue using it. I didn't want to be exposed to it. It's a poison to humans, uh, but it's organic. So that's the way you could farm organically. And I went away from that. I went, you know, I was kind of fooling myself or maybe there wasn't good enough information out there. I'll, I'll say that there was not good enough information. And basically I was equating cultivating on the soil uh, as being similar to, or cultivating under the vine as being similar to using glyphosate. And so I changed and I used glyphosate and that lasted for five six years before we stopped using four years shannon says uh before we stopped using glyphosate and i'm glad we stopped then so we were six years without using any glyphosate on the property and i had actually stopped cultivating i had you know and so this is the, the past 10 years of undervine management we went from cultivating with richard to glyphosate and other pre-emergence to having a undervine cover crop and now we're exactly 360. We are maintaining the cover crop, but we're also cultivating under the vine too. Uh, so not a very vigorous cultivation, just uh, kind of devigoring the cover crop. And, you know, I kind of look at every aspect of life this way. If you're not learning and if you're not improving and if you're not questioning everything you're doing, you're, you're just not doing it. Uh, so I'm constantly trying to get better and understand the system more. Uh, we were using conventional uh, fungicides and any fungicides, which is what copper sulfate is, are required in our climate. So we went from organic to conventional and now we're back to more of a, we, we call it biointensive, uh, where we're not relying on copper sulfate. We're relying on more of uh, biological materials. So live uh, microorganisms, uh, extracts of fermentations or extracts of plants to do uh, the bulk of the fungal control during the growing season. And if we have to use a little bit of copper or a conventional material, if things get really bad, uh, I'm not afraid of that, but I don't want to. So many years we haven't used conventional materials in the past five. So it's been good. I just want to say something uh, to kind of like tie this, come back around to your original statement uh, about how 
we've changed. Um, there was something about Silver Thread that we were really drawn to that made us decide to buy it. Um, and But at the same time, the business was not successful at the time we took it over. And here we were, like we'd been working for other people in wine. We both had degrees. We we totally had this idea that like we knew the answers and we were going to fix it and we were going to bring it around. And and I think um, it's similar to when, you know, everybody, when most people, when you're growing up, you kind of go through this, like you used to idolize your parents. Then you go through this phase where you're like, they don't know anything. And then you kind of come back around and you're like, well, actually, I think I get it now. And maybe they did know more than I thought. So so I think we both feel that way a lot about Silver Thread. Like we were obviously drawn to it, even though it's not our family. You know, we wanted to buy it. We got here. We thought we knew better. And now, you know, we're we're still doing a lot of things very differently than Richard did. But I think we, you know, as, as Paul has mentioned a couple of times, we, we have a lot more respect or what happened here before us than than we did at the beginning. And R- Richard was really kind of pushing the envelope in, uh, before his time. Oh, yeah. He was 20 years ahead of his time. Like, all yeah. the stuff that he was doing here that nobody was, like, very few people were paying attention to. Well, I think if it's important would... to, to mention, um, just for anybody who listens to this, Paul, you, you, you mentioned copper sulfite. And correct me if I'm wrong, but... Under USDA organic, you can spray as much copper sulfide as you want, correct? I believe so. I know that might be. I know that there's a limit in in the EU. Yeah, yeah. In in Europe, there used to be unlimited, and now they're so some some places are spraying the equivalent. So you look at copper sulfate, and it's actually sulfate. And I've got to correct you from a chemistry standpoint. I'm sorry. Oh yes, (laughs) and they've reduced the. Uh, amount of metallic copper that you can apply per acre. It, it used to be unlimited. And then some places were dumping on like 20, 30 pounds of metallic copper or more every year. Uh, they're down to something like four pounds per acre of metallic copper they can apply. And they're reducing that even further. Uh, so as I've gone into using copper, uh, I've not used copper sulfate. There's other chemistries of copper out there that are more effective, actually. More expensive, though. But we're applying between one and two pounds per acre of metallic copper. And what I've also learned is that the types of soils we have here are more resilient um, to copper load uh, versus something like a sandy soil wouldn't be very resilient at all. We've got more silt loam here. So there, it's a very complicated system. And as I've learned more about the the farm and where I'm farming, and uh, I'm more comfortable uh, with certain practices like that. So I think, again, it, I, I'd like to get your take on this because there's certainly a consumer base out there that buys blindly according to a USDA organic certification on a product. But that does not necessarily mean that certain modern synthetics are not better for the planet. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's really what drove us to go away from organic. So as I mentioned, uh, farming in this climate, farming vinifera varieties in this climate demand that we use fungicides and other, you know, insecticides sometimes too. And there are organic alternatives, but that doesn't mean that the organic alternatives are better or have a less of a environmental impact than some of these synthetic alternatives or conventional alternatives. And sometimes, uh, from a sustainability 
uh, standpoint, you can make a really good argument for conventional practice, certain conventional practices or uh, synthetic conventional materials. You, you use much less of some of them and they degrade faster than the env environment. I don't want to use them. I mean, they're kind of part of the whole petrochemical industry, which I don't want to support. Um, but, you know, what I'm looking at are things that are more environmentally friendly, more biological, that are, have less of a poisoning effect or a long-term effect in the environment. And, and frankly, there's just not a lot of good information on many of the things that farmers spray on farms. Uh, so, you know, we look at what sustainability is, and that's just maintaining what we're doing and making sure we can do it next year. Um, and that might not be the best uh, outlook if we're continuing to impact our soil. So I've really shifted not only to, uh, you know, this biointensive management, but it fits very well in with the regenerative agriculture movement and just really looking at the soil, making sure things aren't accumulating in the soil, making sure that the biological uh, ecosystem in the soil is healthy and growing and that we're putting some of the carbon back in the soil that we've stripped out of it in the past 150 years of farming. Well, I, I just think that it's an important conversation to have because at the end of the day, for consumers, you know, if you wanna if you wanna do good by the land when it comes to agriculture products like wine or produce or anything, really, you have to if if you wanna if you really wanna do what's best, you have to know the producers. You should not just follow these certifications blindly. Would you agree with that? I agree. I yes, mean, it's yep. it, it, especially, you know, I, I tend to hear certain others in the industry uh, speak a little bit dogmatically about certifications or practices. And that's just a dangerous point of view to take, because if you're going to be so assertive about something, then you really need to live your life that way. And I'm fairly certain that I could go through <laughs> some of these people's closets and, and find a pair of shoes that like dolphins were killed to make. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, a funny one that I, you know, like there's some people that think organic means you means no spray. So, you know, no spray is a type of organic farming, but the, even Cornell came out with a hybrid called the no spray variety, but even that has to get sprayed a few times. They should call it the low spray variety, but but it's funny because some people are like, oh, well, I never, I never eat anything that touched, was touched by pesticides. And then I just want to ask people sometimes like, well, are you wearing deodorant? Do you ever take, <laughs> you know, ibuprofen when you have a headache? Because, you know, it, it's one of those things that's just, people would like it to be very black and white. And in truth, it's really complicated. Uh, but I, but in defense of certifications, I think they are a, a critically important thing for to, to help with sales and marketing of products. And, and I think uh, I'm happy that there is a, an effort underway for the Finger Lakes to have a sustainability certification because we're, we're really missing the boat by not having one. Well, I mean, here's what I would say to, to wine drinkers or even those in the trade that are becoming more interested in viticulture in, in Northeastern North America is, look, I mean, the, the argument that is if it can't be organic, then it shouldn't be done. I don't like that because we like these wines. There are good wines. These sites and this climate are producing wines that have these nervy tensions that that we like to drink. So 
if we like them, then let's make them and be as responsible as we can. And that's, I sleep okay at night uh, with that approach. And I think that's the right approach. I mean, it, growing grapes here is hard. And it, if you say you have to do it organically, that ratchets up the difficulty factor. You know, you're, you've gone from the uh, blue square or the green circle on the uh, ski slope to the double black diamond. And not everybody can ski a double black diamond, and especially with the varieties that we're growing. So we've just got to be open to doing it as responsibly as practical. And it's, it's good if we get a certification program that is third party verified, you know, it would be helpful to understand what is really going on and that we're really doing, you know, everybody's doing it responsibly. Yeah. And unfortunately there are those who are not uh, using responsible practices. And again, that just comes back to know your producer and don't, you know, just look to certifications or, you know, but I mean, I do agree with you that uh, I, I, I believe there is a sustainable certification in the works for New York state. And that is a good thing. And honestly, you know, the, the situation with organic, it's better now than it was, you know, 30 years ago when there was no definition of what organic was per se. Yep. And to just to kind of finish on that subject, Paul do, and Shannon, do, would you envision a, a time when a possible biodynamic certification might be practical and even maybe even just some part of your vineyard? So... You had to go there, huh, Paul? <laughs> I'm I'm interested, and I, I would say that I'm even studying what biodynamics is. But there's certain fundamental aspects of um, the history that I question whether that's you know the best thing that we could possibly take from you know thousands of years of farming that you know we're really looking for more spiritual entry into the farming uh, world. And I'm a very spiritual person in terms, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual when it comes to the, the land and the earth. And I just don't know that biodynamics is what I want to hang my hat on for my spiritual farming venture. And I'm kind of looking for what my pathway is and looking at biodynamics as a one possible way of being more in touch with what is out there. Uh, but I'm looking, I'm looking for other inspirations too. And I know there's other systems out there. And if you could ask me the name, don't, because I can't per se name them, but I'm looking for where my spiritualism and farming is going to come from in the future. So good deal. So let's talk about, uh, some of the, some of these new plantings that are going in your vineyard. So we've, we've covered, I think in a pretty good, uh, good way the the shift to vinifera and and in particular around seneca lake where where you guys are where these warm sites make it possible for for these excellent vinifera wines to be produced now hybrid grapes which were for a long time the only thing that that were being used to make wines and then when vinifera sort of took over they became ignored or they became sort of just used for lesser expensive and wines that were considered less pedigreed. But I want to say that, I mean, there's a number of reasons that people have become more interested and more open to these hybrid grapes. And one was that, you know, it wasn't that long ago when, when it was, when all the 
premier vinifera grapes were spoken for in the region. So you get a young winemaker who's eager to to make something cool coming out of Cornell or or wherever and moves to the Finger Lakes and can't get their hands on any good vinifera fruit. So what what option do they have but to to make wine from hybrids? And some of those wines were pretty good and caught the attention of the trade. And I mean, the fact is, is if you take those grapes seriously, they can make an interesting product. So we've, we're kind of full circle in a way. And, and from conversing with Shannon, I know that you guys are giving some attention to some of these hybrid grapes on your site now. So if one of you wants to go ahead and talk about that um, sort of acceptance back to hybrid grape growing in, in terms of winemaking, how you're approaching that, how you feel about it, and how the region feels about it. Yeah, well, of course, it's always hard to speak for the region because we 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 say a lot that, you know, we get along so well in the Finger Lakes, but it's a bit like herding cats because everyone has to have their, we have a lot of mavericks. So I can't speak to how, you know, how everyone feels about it. But I will say when we, when we bought Silver Thread, there never had been a single non-vinifera wine made here. So it, when you were, you know, put yourself in Richard's, Richard Fiegel's shoes, trying to gain acceptance for premium wines for a region that most people had never heard of. And like you wanted to run away from the Labrusca and the hybrid varieties. Um, when we took over, we knew that we wanted to have sort of an entry-level wine. We were mostly thinking for our tasting room, because of course, in a tasting room, people are not as discerning about exactly what grape variety is, the way they might be in a restaurant. So we uh, selected Vidal Blanc, and we purchased that from a neighboring vineyard. Of, Which is a French-American hybrid. It's a French-American. Paul and I both felt that, you know, in our opinions from being in the Finger Lakes for seven years and tasting a lot of wines, we, we liked that variety. So we, we came out with a wine called Good Earth White, and it was a blend of Vidal, Riesling, Gewürztraminer. It was modeled after an Alsatian Edelsvicker. And to our, to our surprise and delight, it was uh, not only one of our top tasting room wines, but it was also one of our top wines in, in distribution for both restaurants and retail. So, you know, that proved right off the bat that, you know, it's really not the taste of these hybrid varieties, you know, in the bother people in the hands of the right winemaker, you can have a, a really beautiful wine. Um, it's more, you know, how you, how you market it, how you tell the story. Now, over the past 10 years, we, we find that people's palates have changed um, in that sort of light bodied, very crisp acid driven wine that we're making based on Vidal is not so fashionable anymore. You've seen the introduction of a lot more soft, medium to full bodied, you know, mouth filling white wines that have become really popular. So I said to Paul, like, what can we use to sort of shift <laughs> the style you know, to this more fashionable. Um, and let me just interject. We had taken a year off of making the Vidal Blanc based Good Earth White. And so it was like a good time to sort of make a change. And, uh, and Paul also, you haven't said this, but he's a professor uh, of viticulture and wine technology at Finger Lakes Community College. And they work uh, in conjunction with Cornell to, to have a, a small, uh, they call it a teaching and demonstration vineyard on the other side of Seneca Lake, where they grow a lot of different 
uh, like a mix of hybrid Labrusca vinifera to, to help teach not only the students, but aspiring grape growers through Cornell Cooperative Extension, you know, how to grow, how to establish and care for vineyards. So um, through that vineyard, we had the chance to work with a couple of other hybrids. Uh, and I think originally Paul's students made some wines out of these and they turned out really well. And so when I said, hey, let's do something a little different, he knew exactly which varieties to go to. And then, you know, so we, we introduced a new version of Good Earth Red or Good Earth White based <laughs> on these, un, they're these numbered hybrids from Cornell. They don't even have names, but it was, it, it was extremely well received. So we're, you know, we're, we're sticking with that direction. And now, now we're looking to establish those varieties here at Silver Thread in our, in our own vineyard. And I'll, I'll let Paul talk about that. Yeah. So we're looking for these, right? One of them's NY81 unnamed, and there's not a lot of plantings and all of the plantings are spoken for, which we could just kick ourselves for because years ago, back in 2012, we had a grower begging us to buy it. And we we're like, no, no, <laughs> we're going to live it all. Um, so we gave that up and uh, somebody else now makes wine out of those grapes. And we have a pretty solid footing into the thousand pounds that are produced uh, in this teaching vineyard uh, that my students don't use, but we'd like more. And also looking at some of these other varieties, we're not finding the growers that are growing in a way that we want to grow the grapes. And we know that growing the grapes differently make the grapes taste different. And so we're really, after much thought and consideration of uh, what our next steps are here at Silver Thread Vineyard, we are clearing some, and I hate to say that word because I just hate even the idea. It's hard for me even to walk over there right now, but currently right now we are clearing a couple acres and that we're going to be planting, we're, we're calling it the uh, block four or even better, the Good Earth Vineyard, uh, which is, you know, after ripping down trees, not the best, but um, well, <laughs> in the future, it'll be great. <laughs> but I will say it, it was vineyard. It was it's, vineyard a hundred years ago. Uh, we're reclaiming. Yes. And I'm going to be using regenerative practices, um, getting us, you know, building more organic matter back into the soil, going in a positive direction uh, for the life of that vineyard versus mining that the soil will have animals over there. It'll be, everything will be on a high trellis. So if we want sheep, we can have sheep someday. We already have chickens in our current vineyard. So I kind of want to expand that idea. I've really enjoyed raising animals so far. So we'll and, and we would like to farm this vineyard uh, organically because the hybrid grapes are more, uh, you know, they require fewer inputs and they're, they're more conducive to organic methods of farming. However, I don't know if it could be certified because it's within, it's probably it's not a big enough buffer zone from really our close to the Chardonnay at Doyle Fournier. So it might be possible that part of the vineyard could be certified someday. It'll be far enough away, but we'll just have to see. We're going to be planting all local varieties, some of these numbered varieties and some that I haven't worked yet with yet um, that are part of the no spray program. And I think that some of the ability to grow these grapes and make wine out of them have, uh, and Paul, you touched on this, 
uh, the evolving taste of the consumer and also newer wine styles uh, where sparkling's really becoming popular. It's not as important that sparkling is made from Chardonnay or Pinot Noir. We can make sparkling from some of these hybrid varieties and people love it. Uh, it doesn't have to be a method traditional. It could be a pet nat or I don't think we'd do a forced carbonation, but uh, a tank fermented wine. So all of those possibilities are on the table as this vineyard is developed and we start getting grapes from it in three, four years from now. So, Are any of these um, yet to be named new hybrids that you're talking about red grapes? Yes. Actually, one of the varieties we'll be planting next year is a variety called Regent. Have you heard of that, Paul? I have. This is German, correct? Is yes, it? it's, a, yeah, okay. it's a German hybrid. In, in Europe, it's considered vinifera, but it was you know, bred with Native American genetics. And it's a little bit easier to farm. It's uh, more disease tolerant. We've got a little bit in the teaching vineyard. That's where I became familiar with it. And the wines that it makes are really kind of outstanding. And I'm excited to have some of that as part of this uh, vineyard. I mean, let's just talk about sparkling wines for a second because you mentioned it. I mean, this this is what the region was founded on. And these hybrid grapes, for the most part, are pretty high in acidity. And you can pick them early and they require less spray input. And there are wineries that that are that are making really delicious sparkling wines in all sorts of different methods and i'm i'm curious if you like i'm thinking of one in particular like our mutual friend ian barry made a totally kick-ass sparkling red from the leon Mio grape and like these are the types of wines that in particular the new york city trade just just devour so i mean i really do think that there is no one in the trade has any fear no one is allergic to hybrids in the trade, unless you're like some really old school Sam who came up, you know, in Michigan or Canada or New York or something and only remember those early days. But for the most part, the only people that I find that are allergic to this movement are certain wineries. Well, I would say too, uh, like, I mean, I know 10 years isn't a super long time to own a winery, but I have seen there's been a huge generational shift in who is buying the wine. So, you know, 10 years ago when we were going to New York City to do a trade tasting with our distributor, I could tell, you know, you could you could profile like who was going to come over to our table and taste our finger lips. If you wine. had a suit on, you were if not you, coming yes, to If our you were table. wearing a suit and, you know, older than us, you were not coming over. But it, like if you were younger and looked like, you know, you just if you look like Paul Greco, you right. come over to our table. <laughs> I was going to say, you look like you just rolled out of bed. I don't, it, there's been, and I mean, you've seen this. There's this, Paul and I are uh, Gen X. So we're sort of this smaller age group. We always joke, there's like not a lot of us anywhere, especially in the wine industry in the Finger Lakes. So, so, you know, we have so many great friends that are our parents' age and so many great friends that are quite a bit younger. But it's it's been so interesting for us when we came in, you know, we were we were the young ones and and that so many people were older than us and we're like the young whippersnappers. And then now we sort of feel like we're, we're not the young ones. Well, we're anymore. not old enough to be anyone. I'm still young, yet, but, but I'm not the young one. But it's been so refreshing to have this younger, like millennial group of buyers come on the scene and really, um, really take ownership of their wine lists and, and be fearless, as you say, 
and not be allergic. Right, right. And and that's really exciting. And I, I always say that, you know, we when we took over at Silver Thread, we felt like Silver Thread had always tried to be a classic winery and that we, you know, it's much more suited to our personalities to continue on as a classic winery. I mean, we want to make classic varietals. That's still the heart and soul of what we do. We want to our wines to be highly ageable. Um, and we don't want to be one of those places that that is you know, bending to every new fashion or every new whim of the wine industry, but certain things like sparkling and, you know, we've started making a pet nat as well as a, a method traditionnel. I don't, I don't see forced carbonation ever being something that would fit. It, it just doesn't seem like it makes it like it's consistent with, with silver thread and, and what we're all about. But, um, but, you know, certain methods of sparkling are great. And, and I think the story of working with some of these hybrid varieties in you know, going along with the farming practices we're already using, you know, makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, and really what's driving this is the farming practices and obviously the openness of, of the wines that we can make from them. Well, and the thing is, is that you can make good wines from from, from these grapes. We're, we're seeing that with all sorts of different producers, not only in New York, but throughout uh, um, the Northeast and a little bit of the Midwest. And you know, for someone like me, whose job historically has been to sell and market these wines, the you know the more good wine, the better. It doesn't matter what species of grapes the wines are made from. All that it matters is that the wines are good. And as someone who's judged in in wine competitions um, with you know that uh, featured a lot of East Coast wines or Midwest wines, I tell you, more often than not, the the worst wines in the in these settings are typically the vinifera wines. <laughs> yep, we've experienced that too. <laughs> yeah, and I know that it's a sensitive a sensitive subject for for many, but you know, some would rather not have uh, the region be marketed in a way that promotes these grapes, but again, uh, you both have to sell wine as well. I'm pretty sure that the answer is good wine. The answer is not exclusively vinifera. I know I can make good wines out of these varieties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I, one of the one of the saving graces of you know being here in New York, it's and just being in the United States in general. There, we are such a massive society, such a diverse society. We it is not a one size fits all. I mean, I know there are certain you know small European countries or Asian countries where you can go and, you know, it's like, this is the way it is. This is what everybody eats. This is what everyone drinks. This is how they dress. But, you know, this is the United States. There's, there's room, there's room for everybody. Um, and all and, types of wine. Yes. As long as they're well-made and interesting. And so uh, we, we've hit the hour mark and I, and I want to certainly respect uh, the time constraints, but last, last question I want to ask you both is about Riesling in particular. I think we all love Riesling. But we also know that there are some challenges that come along with Riesling. And what? What? what did you say? <laughs> Explain yourself. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, in terms of of farming in the region, I mean, red, red grape farming has come and, and winemaking has come so far, and we we're we're all loving these delicious red wines that are coming from Long Island, the Finger Lakes, the Hudson Valley, and Niagara, and you know, Vermont and Virginia and Michigan and Ontario. 
And it, it wasn't always so. I mean, there was a time when they might have been underripe or over-oaked or too green or whatever the whatever it may have been. But red grape farming has has really come a long way. And they're consistently now in every vintage. The, these wines are delicious. Unfortunately, I see a little bit more Riesling for sale every year on the Cornell classified sites, whether it's grape, grapes or juice or bulk wine. Do you think there may be a movement to to even out the plantings throughout the region in terms of inching up the the quantity of red grape acreage so that it someday might equal that of Riesling? That's a great question, Paul. Uh, possibly. I, I think that there's room for it, especially if you include rosé production in the conversation where rosé is has been popular, you know, gained in popularity. And I mean, I can uh, tell you right now, as somebody who, who looks at the data, red wine is still the best-selling wine in the United States. Yeah. Rosé is by far the category that continues to grow the most every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that requires red grapes. So I, I would not be surprised if the red vinifera or even hybrid plantings accelerate. I don't know that our region is going to grow without Riesling though. And I think that as we've seen the the projection of the Finger Lakes on the rest of the world, it's been through Riesling. And I think that the next phase is with red and rosé and these locally adapted varieties, but Riesling is going to maintain that focus. And, you know, if I can write my own epitaph someday, I, I kind of wanted to say something to the effect of interpreted the land through Riesling. Um, and, and let people enjoy what I leave behind uh, with, with Riesling, because I think Riesling is so special, has been special to the Finger Lakes, but uh, it's just a special variety that is, you know, hopefully going to remain really popular for through the Finger Lakes. And it's, I mean, we don't have any trouble selling Riesling. No. It's been our top seller always, and we continue to grow our production kind of slowly and steadily year over year. So uh, I love growing Riesling and I love making Riesling. Yeah, but I, I mean, I don't know that that's the, I, I think it's a tough, uh, I've, from talking to some of our peer wineries, it's a tough, um, not not everyone wants to play in the sand, the Riesling box, sandbox. Uh, you know, some other producers say like, oh, you know, there's so much competition in Riesling. Like we're not gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do Rosé. We're gonna do Cab Branc. We're, um, but like, we're, we're really happy to be in the Riesling, you know, the, the exclusive Riesling sandbox in the Finger Lakes and, <laughs> and, uh, and push each other <laughs> to really make the best that, that we possibly can. I mean, there's no doubt that there is something magic about Riesling from the Finger Lakes. I just, it's tough when you are a, a restaurant or a shop or, or, or in marketing, when you're responsible for, for a sizable number of producers and each of them have like eight Rieslings. So just carry one. Yeah. Just buy the silver thread. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. Paul, we, we have had this conversation before. And do you, think, do you think that? I think you, that we just have to agree to disagree because Paul Brock and I here at Silver Thread are really, you know, we, we are on the Riesling train and I know that you maybe aren't and that's okay because we have a lot of other wines we need to sell too. <laughs> and when I said just carry one, I meant carry one from each producer. It's fine. Well, here's, I mean, I, I think the, you know, I, I never don't have a bottle of Riesling open in my fridge. Like uh, 
every day. I mean, the the issue that I that I see is there there might be we might be at a point where there we know that there's enough. And it just kind of makes me sad to know that every year there's Riesling that hangs on the vine to die. And I know that it's a lot harder to, to replant grapes on the East Coast than in a place like California. Oh, oh, Paul, your job is not done as an advocate of New York wine until there's a, a Finger Lakes Riesling in every wine and liquor shop around this country. We're not done. Well, we might have We're to have a... We're not even close. Not even we close. Might have to, we might have to have a have uh, the two of you and, and maybe somebody else who's fun back for an episode uh, really on just like the an, an approach to Riesling because we also have to think about that we're there there is Germany and there is Washington State Where are they? and to <laughs> to get a Riesling on <laughs> to get a Riesling on every shelf or every menu is a difficult thing when you go to Germany in the Mosul or the Rheingau and you stand on the top of a of a of a vineyard that when you look down is like a double black diamond ski hill and yet and, and it's one of the finest Riesling vineyards in the world and then the wine costs like 20 bucks <laughs> so <laughs> you know so government subsidized so they can farm no it's it's fine i i have nothing but respect for anybody who can possibly farm a side of one of those hills and you know we're making different Riesling than Germany is. And there's a place for all of us. And I think that we just need to educate the wine drinking public how great Riesling is. And I think everybody in the industry who has exposure to Riesling knows that. We just have to make sure that we keep ringing the bell and singing the song and until the consumers across the country and the world understand that Riesling is the best variety. You, you've had some, some excellent success using Riesling in a proprietary blend. Do you think that we might eventually see more of those around the state? Possibly. I know we're going to keep doing it. Cool. Well, this was so much fun and, and so informative. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the message that uh, farming practices are improving uh, throughout the region and the, in the state is, is so good for wine drinkers to hear. And um, you know, I, I, I knew that, that you two were playing no small role in, in pushing this movement forward. So, so thank you both for what you do and for chatting with me today. Thanks Paul. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Search for a Northern wine odyssey by searching Cork Report Podcast in Spotify, Apple, or Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you again to Dave Miller for the opening and closing music. Check him out, DaveMillerGuitar.com. And uh, Paul and Shannon, thank you again. Have a wonderful uh, spring, beautiful spring day that we have here. Cheers, Paul.